Greetings to each of you in the wonderful name of Jesus. The scripture says he is the God of all grace. The God of all grace. And as we move forward through this message this morning that will hopefully mean more to you. You know, I don't think of of grace quite the same as, as I used to. Ever since Brother Donnie Brenneman was here for revivals back in February maybe, he expounded so wonderfully from the book of Ruth and brought out the wonderful grace of God in a way that I just hadn't thought of before. And, and he brought some things to light that were so beautiful. Anyway, this morning as we move into James chapter 4 once again, uh, we will be looking partly at the grace of God. I call your attention there to James chapter 4. As we move into uh, the middle part of this chapter, several weeks ago I started this message titled Conflict, the Cause and the Cure, and today we'd like to look at part two. And so the verses that we'll be looking at today are verses four through ten of James chapter four. Before we read those, let's just do a a quick review of part one. That was the first three verses of this chapter. And and we made we made three or four actually four observations as it as it has to do with the cause of conflict and some other observations um, similar to that that go along with that. But we noted in verse 1 that conflicts come from within us. They come from within us. You see, we would like to start pointing fingers when, when something comes up, when a conflict happens, when problems start. Oh, it's not my fault. It's because of this or this or that. But no, James makes it clear conflicts come from within us. Conflicts are really all about who is on the throne of my life. Who is ruling me? Who is calling the shots? What's driving me? And when the carnal heart is in control, there will be conflict. And then we also noted in verse 2 that cravings are at the center of conflicts. It's all about a selfish desire to get more and more. You want something for yourself. And so you will go to all ends to get that. It's that selfish desire within you. And we noted that we experience true peace and real blessings when we see and acknowledge what really drives us, what our motives are, what our passions are, and when we let God truly have control of our life. Put him on the throne of our life. We also noted in verse 2 that conflicts create confusion. You look at at verses 1 and 2 and it's a a picture of disorder. It's a picture of confusion. People wanting their own way. Selfish desires at play. And conflicts create confusion wherever they exist. And in the midst of it, godly vision and true purpose is often lost. We, we noted the example of in the life of the church. When conflicts come up and exist in the life of the church, 
Conflict causes the powerful energy of the body of believers to be exerted inwardly instead of outwardly, which is really the true why of the church. It's outreach. It's spreading the gospel. Yes, we come here to be, to be recharged and to encourage one another and to feed on God's word, but the church is about going out. And so when conflicts exist... The energy is poured inward instead of outward. And in the midst of all that, the true vision and purpose and why of the church often becomes blurry. It's forgotten. And then we noticed in verse 3 that conflicts hinder our relationships with God. Once again, conflict is, is all about who is on the throne of your life. And when self is on the throne, prayer is powerless. We could say it this way. Prayer is powerless until self submits. And clear communication with God calls for true humility and pure motives. And now as we move on, James addresses another area of conflict, and that is conflict with God. The first three verses deal more directly with conflict with others, relationships with others. And here in verses 4 and 5, James speaks more directly to conflict with God and our personal relationship with God. Let's note verses 4 and 5. He, he writes, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Another cause of conflict here is unfaithfulness in our commitment to Jesus Christ. You see, problems arise in our relationship with God when we fail to have that single eye. When our flesh, well, you could say this way, when, when we start flirting with the flesh, when we begin to cast that longing glance towards the glamour of the world, you know, it's those fleshly things. It's that, those inner desires, that old man, that earthly passion that is within us that longs for those things. And when we begin to let, let those have their way, problems arise, conflicts arise in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, one of the things that Jesus had against the church at Ephesus was that they had left their first love. He says, I have somewhat against you, you have left your first love. And James says, in essence, this is the same thing here. He says, you have walked out on the one that you have committed your life to. And you are seeking the friendship of another. He uses these strong terms, adulterers and adulteresses. <laughs> you see, he had been calling the people up to this time, my brethren. My beloved brethren. But no, 
Not anymore. Not anymore. Here he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And immediately when we think of of those words, we think of the marriage relationship. Those terms are often used in a husband and wife, a marriage relationship. Let's consider that analogy for just a moment because I believe it it helps drive the point home. (laughs) No pun intended. But the strength of a marriage relationship is founded in trust. It's founded on commitment. And true, that begins, first of all, individually, each individual with God. They have that person with God. But then together, as they come together in marriage, there is the bond of trust. There is the bond of commitment. They commit their lives to one another. And the strength of marriage is founded on that. And so in that marriage service, solemn promises are made. Before God and all these witnesses, I do, till death do us part. And many of you have said those words. But consider for a moment, if one of those partners then chooses to be unfaithful to their marriage vow by seeking love and friendship from another, immediately there is cause for conflict. Immediately, those partners are at odds. Immediately, problems arise. The husband and wife are no longer one in spirit. They are no longer... Yes, they are no longer one in spirit. They are at odds. They are, as James says, at enmity with one another. Something has come between them and has severed that sacred trust. And those of you, those of us, who are here this morning that are married, can understand this. Yes, we can, we can wrap our minds around this. And, and probably when we allow ourselves to ponder uh, this scenario happening in our relationship, which we shouldn't think of often, but when we allow ourselves to ponder this, no doubt it would bring some righteous anger within us. Those feelings would stir up within us. And we would say, that would not be right. That would be wicked. That is wrong. That should never happen. And rightly so. These things seem clear to us as married couples when we consider it that way. Well, the fact is, James here isn't necessarily speaking about the marriage relationship, although it's a fitting analogy. He's speaking about our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in a very similar way, similar to the marriage relationship, James is calling us this morning to consider our personal commitment to Jesus Christ. You see, we have given our lives to him. We have committed ourselves to live for Him till death do us part. We have made vows to God. In fact, as I was considering this, I had to consider the vows that we make when we are baptized. I've thought about that different times over the years when I've observed a baptism service. Young people who have committed their lives to Christ 
and then they come to a baptism service, and they make very, very serious binding vows. Let me, just, let me just remind you, let me refresh your memory of the vows that most of you have made. And I'll just mention two of them. There's, there's several that we, that we make at that point. Are you truly sorry for your past sins? And are you willing to renounce Satan, the world, and all works of darkness, and your own carnal will and sinful desires? And we say, I am. Do you promise by the grace of God and the aid of His Holy Spirit to submit yourself, we're going to talk about about that in just a moment too, to submit yourself to Christ and His Word and faithfully to abide in the same until death? And we say, I do. Those are serious vows. Most of us here in this group have made those vows. Well, James, James doesn't give us any room to squirm, as, as you found out so far in this book study. James doesn't give us any room to squirm here. Has it ever dawned on you that when you fail to be faithful to your commitment to Jesus Christ, to the vows that you have made to Him, God sees you as an adulterer, as an adulteress, an adulteress. <laughs> James makes two very alarming statements here, and I'll put them in my own words here. In in verse 4, when we show friendship to the world, we are expressing hatred toward God. Now, keep in mind here, as it speaks of the world, there's different meanings of world uh, in the Bible. It's not talking about people here as such as talking about the program of the world the darkness of the world satan's realm the world evil apart from god that package but james says that when we show friendship to the world we are expressing hatred toward god And then he says, when we choose to become a friend of the world, we become an enemy of God. An enemy of God. No, we are no longer on the same team. We are no longer one. We are no longer in unity. We are at odds. We are playing against each other. We are going two different directions. And in those times of unfaithfulness, we immediately want to say, oh, no, no, I don't hate God. I don't, I don't really hate God. That's not really how I feel towards God. Oh, really? But that's how God feels towards you. Picture for a moment... Yourself in God's place. Picture yourself in God's place. And people have committed themselves to you. 
picture for a moment yourself as that spouse who has just been cheated. How would you feel? You see, at that point, you have chosen to follow. You have chosen to follow after something that you think is more attractive at the expense of your first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you can say all you want, but your heart has left the one and moved to the other. And your heart can't be at two places at once. Your heart can only be truly one place at once. I'd like to note two scriptures that relate to this. First is Matthew chapter 6. Jesus spoke some words concerning this. You see, the devil would like us to think that we can sort of have a foot in both camps. That we can sort of enjoy the blessings of both sides. Of the good and, well, not so good, but, you know. Jesus makes it clear that dual allegiance is not only dangerous, it's not only deceitful, it's actually impossible. It's impossible. Matthew chapter 6, let's just start at verse 21. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Think here of a a focus, a single focus, a desire to pursue Jesus Christ. That's that single eye. Your whole focus in life is to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, or in other words, if it's not single, but if it's evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And so already in those verses, he's making it clear, you can't have both. You can't have both. It's a trick of the devil. But moving on, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus said dual allegiance is impossible. Now, move to 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17 here. The Apostle John writes this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
And the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Once again, a very clear picture of where our allegiance must be. And and the impossibility of thinking that we can sort of have both. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not in him. And James, here in our text in chapter 4, speaks some very similar words where he says, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity or is hatred with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Dear people, God requires unconditional commitment to Him. Unconditional. I note in Deuteronomy 10 verse 12, we read this. What doth the Lord require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. God requires that from the believer. It's unconditional commitment. And that word unconditional means not limited in any way. Not holding back. Giving it all you got. All your effort. Not having any little closets or rooms in your heart that you're not willing to open up. No. Opening yourself up. Committing your life to the Lord. Lord, have your way with me. I hold nothing back. Unconditional. Absolute. There's nothing between me and God. The way is clear. God requires a heart that is sold out to Him. That's that's where the blessings are. That's where the beauty is. Reminds me of the old hymn, Nothing Between. Let me just read some of those words. And I trust this is your desire. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, not of this world's delusive dream. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. Let nothing between. Nothing between, like worldly pleasure, Habits of life, though harmless they seem, must not my heart from him ever sever. He is my all. Let nothing between. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. Sounds like perhaps James could have wrote that song, but I don't think he did. But it follows right along with his challenge in verse 4. Well, that's the last part of the cause of conflict. Let's note now the part that is much more beautiful, and that is the cure for conflict. The cure for conflict. And dear people, the cure for conflict in our relationship with others 
and our relationship with God is found in submissive action. Submissive action. And on this Father's Day, perhaps there's nothing better that we fathers need to hear than to hear that we also must submit. You know, dads, the buck, do- the buck doesn't stop with us. Too often times I've came across that way, I think, in my home. But many homes have been damaged and many little children have went through a lifetime of hurt because of dads that failed to submit to God. That ruled with an iron rod, with an iron fist in the home. And what I say goes, and I don't want to hear it any other way, and you do it or else. And yet they failed to submit to God. They required others to submit to them, and yet they failed to submit to God. And so, fathers, we must learn to submit. Remember, conflict is all about who is on the throne of your life. Who is ruling you? What's driving you? And we can experience real peace and rich blessings when we, through the power of God, humble ourselves and daily submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we will see in the next few verses here, verses 6 through 10, that the cure for conflict has a lot to do with our humility, but it has so much more to do with God's gift of grace. So much more. Let's read verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Notice how James responds to the chaos, to the confusion, to the conflict, to the strife in verses 1 through 5. It's a picture of strife. It looks terrible. It looks hopeless. Look how he responds to that. But he giveth more grace. But he giveth more grace. But not just to anyone. He says he gives grace unto the humble. He gives grace unto the humble. Now in verses 7 through 10, James lists seven actions that we must take. And he also lists 
three promises that God makes. Seven actions that we take, three promises that God makes. Let's consider our part first. And as we note these seven actions, let's think specifically how each of these seven actions requires humility. I'll make a few comments, but I want you also to mind the Spirit as He speaks to you in these areas. Each of these seven actions that we must take requires humility. First of all, verse 7, submit to God. Let me just first of all note the two together. Submit to God and resist the devil. We see both of those in verse 7. Perhaps sometimes the reason that conflicts exist and we have a hard time dealing with them is because we're not submitting to God the way we ought and we're playing a little bit with the devil. But you note, James says we must submit to God and we must resist the devil. In fact, we will not be able to, to resist the devil if we cannot truly submit to God. That must come first. But think how these require humility on our part. Submit to God. And immediately the flesh says, wait a minute. But I'd like to do it my own way. It's much easier to do it this way and it's much more comfortable. I can't, I don't know what's going to happen. Submit to God. Commit to living life God's way. Takes humility. Resist the devil. But it's fun. You mean completely? Well, but I've, I've done it before. What about just a little bit? You know how the flesh likes to play with you? How the devil likes to play with you? Keep in mind that the devil is stronger than you are. The devil is nothing to play with. And yes, the scripture says that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But the devil is stronger than our flesh. Praise God for the Holy Spirit, which helps us to live above the flesh. And so, yes, we must submit to God. He is greater, and with the help and power of God, we can resist the devil and live in victory. Remember, once again, that dual allegiance, don't fool yourself, dual allegiance is not only dangerous and deceitful, it's also impossible. And so, yes, resist the devil. And what's the promise? He will flee from you. That's beautiful. That's powerful. It's something we cannot do on our own, but through the power of God, we can do. Verse 8. Draw near to God. Why? I can do it myself. I don't need God. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. 
Humility says, I need you, God. I can't live life on my own. I always stumble. I always sin when I try to live life on my own. I need you. Draw near to God. Verse 8. Cleanse your hands. And to me that speaks of the outer. Our actions. Our behavior. Our speech. Our lifestyle. It's a cleansing. That takes humility. Because we have to, first of all, admit that, yes, I have a problem. I have a problem. I don't behave the way I ought. I don't... I'm struggling to have consistent victory in my life. Those words keep popping out. I don't have control over my tongue. My wisdom is not good. It's earthly wisdom. Cleanse your hands. Also verse 8. Something we must do that takes humility. Purify your heart. And to me, that speaks of our inner desires, our motives, our inner, our goals, our passions. It speaks of holiness. What is your goal in life? What is your inner desire? What is your motive? You see, the fleshly man has fleshly goals, fleshly motives fleshly desires. It's of the world. It follows after that which feels good, sounds good, looks good, all of that. And God says here, purify your heart. Purify your heart. Lay your desires aside. Say no to yourself and say yes to the Spirit of God. Strive for holiness. In fact, God says, be ye holy as I am holy. And without holiness, no man shall see God. Holiness. I read recently that holiness is not some unusual thing. You know, sometimes we we say these things in church. And when we're having Bible studies, holiness. Yes, we need to be holy. And our children hear these terms. What, is, what does it mean to be holy? And the quote said, Holiness is not some unusual odd thing. It's simply striving to live with purity of heart. You see, that makes it sound a little bit something that we can understand at least. I don't know if it makes it sound easier. But it's simply striving to live with purity of heart. Follow the example of Jesus. Verse 9. Mourn your sinful, selfish state. Well, I'm not as bad as he is. I mean, I've never done anything really bad. Yeah, I've made a few mistakes. But I've never made any big sins. No. Mourn your sinful, selfish state. To me, that speaks of true repentance. Seeing yourself as God sees you. As undone. 
as needy. You're a sinner in need of a savior. Develop a true hatred for sin. Mourn your sinful selfish state. And then verse 10. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. That's a lifelong process, isn't it? (laughs) You know, those are things that we must do. Those are things that we must do, and they all require humility. They all go against the grain of the flesh. Let's now consider, though, the most beautiful part, and that is God's promises to us. And each of these precious promises speaks of God's amazing grace. Here in these several verses, we see three three gifts of grace. We see what God does. And no, we don't deserve any of these promises. They're simply a gift of grace. In fact, look at who we are without Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 5. Well, the truth is, James was writing here to church members. But look at who we are in verses 1 through 5. And yet, look what God offers to do for us in verses 6 through 10. We don't deserve that. No, it's God's gift of grace to us. And I note, first of all, that God gives grace to humble people. That's God's promise. God gives grace to humble people. There's a special place in God's heart for humble people. Psalm 138 verse 6 says this, Though the Lord be high, yet He hath respect unto the lowly, or he looks on the lowly. It has to do with, it speaks of compassion. He cares about them. They mean something to him. He has a heart for them. God is high, but yet he cares about those who are lowly. I had to think of the poem, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, His multiplied peace. What does that have to do with James chapter 4? Well, it has a lot to do with it because James says He gives more grace when we don't deserve it. You see, we don't deserve any of those good things from God. But he gives grace. Considering that we have often been adulterers in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we deserve death. That's what we deserve. But the scripture says that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Grace has been defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. 
God's riches. In other words, we receive God's riches, but it's at Christ's expense. The scripture says that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. That we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Isn't that beautiful? But once again, we don't deserve it. It's because of God's grace. And truly the greatest expression of grace ever exhibited was when Jesus stooped so low as to die on a cruel cross to save us from our sins. And the gospel songwriter aptly wrote, Grace at its best is the cross of Calvary. Mercy's finest hour is when he died to set us free. Love's greatest story is proclaimed each time he saves the lost. Grace at its best is still the cross. Amen to that. And we look at the cross of Christ. And it should change the way you think about life. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. Well, God gives grace to humble people. But another promise is that God draws near to us. We note that there in verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. But that requires grace. Because we are not worthy of God's goodness. We are not worthy of God's help. No. But God has reached down and out of His great love, He has picked us up. And He has given us a new life. He has given us peace and eternal blessing. Praise God for that. But the promise is there that God draws near to us. And truly, it is because of that that we have power to live the Christian life victoriously because of God's presence and because of God's power at work within us, in our lives. This is not just a power that's out there somewhere that we hope we can tap into. Not at all. But when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, His Spirit dwells within us and teaches us and empowers us to live in victory. Praise God. Well, the other promise that we have here from God is that He lifts us up. God lifts us up. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. He shall lift you up. You know, God has a history of lifting up lowly people. And you can read all through Scripture, and you'll find time and time again that God loves to lift up lowly people. Uh, We could look at Job's testimony. Job said, The lowly He sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Hannah, you remember Hannah, she said, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. We could also look at Mary's testimony. For sake of time, we won't. But in Luke chapter 1, there in the Magnificat, uh, 
Mary's testimony of God's goodness and greatness in her life. She speaks much about how God has lifted up those that are lowly. And perhaps the greatest example of this is in Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes about that Jesus, I note that, that Jesus also, people talk about the seven steps of humility that Jesus went through. Well, here we also have seven steps of humility that we must also go through, James lists. But there in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's as low as it gets. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name above all other names. There it is again, perhaps the greatest example of God lifting those who become lowly. As we draw this to a close, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'd like to share two verses here and then leave you with some words of challenge. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. And dear people, this is a recipe for beautiful, God-honoring relationships. Yes, with one another. Yes, with God. Beautiful God-honoring relationships. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Some words of challenge here for us this morning. Have you ever wondered what the Ebenezer congregation will look like or if you're not from Ebenezer, you can picture your own congregation. What your congregation will look like when Jesus returns. Have you ever pondered that? What it will look like? I've thought about that some. You know what it will look like? It will look just like you. It will look just like you. The Ebenezer congregation will never be more holy Never be more on fire for the Lord. Never be more pure. Never be more at peace than you are. You are the church. We are the church. And so if the Ebenezer congregation is to be found standing when Jesus returns one day, we first have to learn how to live Kneeling. It's a heart of humility. And where humility abounds, conflicts cease. Wars and fightings and strife and all that mess doesn't, doesn't grow and foster and get anywhere in an environment of humility. 
Dear people, the cure for conflict with others, the cure for conflict with God, is founded in submissive action. Once again, it's that heart of humility. And it's a picture, it's a beautiful picture, it's a refreshing picture of peace. It really is. And it is possible, dear people, it is possible. But we each must be committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And yet, I understand that peace will never just happen by default. No. You see, peace isn't just simply walking away from things. Peace doesn't just happen by default. We know what happens by default. Instead, peace must be purposefully pursued. In fact, the scripture says, seek peace and pursue it. (laughs) There is purposeful action. I'm driving for peace. And I will do all I can within my power and with the help of God to achieve it. But just as no battle is ever truly won by the use of force, so peace is never truly gained by exerting an up-and-over attitude. No. But it's a laying aside. It's the attitude of not I, but Christ. It's, it's the desire, brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. It's, it's that desire. It's that attitude. And yes, putting self to death may be one of the hardest battles you will ever fight. But dear people, it reaps the richest rewards. It reaps the richest rewards. May God give us strength to pursue peace. May God bless you. We'll call for a song.